Hello, and welcome to the Southern Stories podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Matthews. This podcast features short fiction written and read by me. Today I'm sharing a story called Negative Tilt, and it's a story I've been trying to tell for a little while now about the death of the daily newspaper industry and what it's like to have to change careers in midlife. I think I finally got it down, mostly anyway. Here's Negative Tilt. It always amazed him that he was good at this kind of work, talking people into giving up their friends and family members, finding out where they'd moved to and why, staying one step ahead of the skip tracers in the corporate office in Memphis. The conversations were the part of the job he liked best. Out of the cab with one steel-toed Wellington propped on the bumper of his tow truck. Sometimes folks would even offer him a drink. Lemonade, sweet tea, or maybe even something harder. But he always declined. He wanted to keep things professional. The conversations were a bittersweet reminder of the life he'd once had a life that had been cut off from him with no apparent way back. He was a good talker, always had been, the kind of good old boy garrulous that could get along with anyone. But what most people missed was that he didn't just talk. He asked questions, and he listened when people answered him. And his boss was always on him about being in the truck more often. Corey knew he spent less time in the cab than other drivers, choosing instead to drive the company's unassuming three-year-old Toyota Corolla most of the time. The big tow truck, a Dodge 4500 with a boom atop its foreshortened rear end like Jesus carrying a hydraulic steel cross, put people on guard. But the Toyota made him seem harmless like a guy from the bank who could be shined on. It would be only later, after the unit had been scooped up sometime in the middle of the night, that some of them might, just might, realize this unassuming, bespectacled Toyota driver had put one over on them. If the conversations were the best part, the constant driving was the worst. He dreaded the long stretches of highway, driving for hours at a time, like a hungry shark churning the water in search of its next meal. That was when he could feel his calves swelling painfully in his boots, constricting the blood flow until his feet began to tingle. Diabetes ran in his family, but he'd always tested negative. Now, as the years and the weight piled up on him, he constantly worried about his blood sugar as if it were an ancestral curse. He treated this new career. He'd been doing it for more than two years now, so that counted as a new career as far as he was concerned. Like his first newspaper job, working swing shift hours so that he could talk to debtors during the day and sweep the city at night. He used the conversations like interviews, jotting down notes as soon as he got back into his own vehicle in order to keep his memory fresh. And that led him to his second favorite part of the job, slipping through the deserted streets after midnight, using his GPS locator 
to compare addresses and locate the missing units. Professionally, they never called their prey cars. Every job has its own gobbledygook, and in the repo industry, agents always referred to cars or trucks as units, as in find the wanted unit, in everything from official reports to casual telephone conversations. Sometime around 2 a.m. was the magic time of night for Corey, listening to Rachel Maddow's podcast from the evening before and letting his mind wander. The company had six trucks working the greater Birmingham area, from Trussville down to Calera, all the way up to Cullman and Jasper. Mostly, Corey worked southwestern Birmingham, despoiled and rotting neighborhoods like Ensley, Brighton, Midfield, Fairfield, Bessemer, and Roosevelt. The other agents based out of this office, Corey couldn't quite think of them as co-workers because they never saw each other, thought he ran the most dangerous territory. But Corey didn't care. He hadn't cared about much since the old life had up and left him. Buyouts, they called them. A month's severance for every year a journalist had worked for the paper. For Corey, who had worked there for 24 years, first as a cub covering cops and courts, working his way to features reporter and then, finally, to deputy managing editor, it was a sizable chunk of change. He didn't leap at the money. Not at first. He thought about it for a couple of weeks. Would have talked it over with Jamie if the kids hadn't already left. Twenty-four years was a long time in any business. He was only 47, in the news business for nearly half his life. If he wasn't a journalist, then what the hell was he? Upper management increased the pressure. They wanted to hire younger people, get some of the heavier paychecks off the books for whatever merger they could finagle next. The advertising manager was the first one to go. The circulation manager got the axe when he wouldn't take the buyout. A 22-year-old kid took his place. As the longest-tenured member of the newsroom, Corey carried a heftier salary than most. If he took the buyout, he could take a year off, work on the novel he kept telling himself he should write. He did the math and then sent an email to the publisher. I can't believe it, Nancy Boyette told him when he boxed up the few personal items on his desk. Nancy, his direct supervisor, the managing editor, with her glossy black hair and piercing blue eyes and bottle of Crown Royal in the bottom left-hand drawer of her big cherry desk, she'd been with the paper for two years and always looked a little lost. I thought you were a lifer. But that was the problem. Newspaper work is a life sentence. It gets in your blood, chasing the story down and wrestling it into print. As the deputy M.E., he was the one who worked the late night shift and put the paper to bed. And his phone was the first to ring in the morning if the shit hit the fan. In 24 years, his skin had become sallow and his hair had all but disappeared. 
There were lines on his face and ulcers in his stomach from the long nights and the short deadlines. It's time to get out, he told her, patting the check folded carefully in his breast pocket. I was treading in deep water for a long time, and they finally threw me a lifeline. A security guard hovered behind Nancy. No matter how cordial the parting, they wanted to make sure he didn't take off with company property. The IT workers had already changed his passwords so that he couldn't damage the paper's website or social media platforms. Not that he wanted to. He didn't care anymore. All he'd ever wanted to do was work for the newspaper, and now they didn't want him, or anyone like him, around anymore. You want to go back outside for one last smoke? Sure, Corey said. He left the half-filled cardboard box in his desk chair. The security guard glowered at them as they went. There wasn't much left in the building. Once he'd decided to take the buyout, he'd started shifting his personal stuff out of the building a little at a time so as not to cause alarm to the reporters who worked under him. Some of them were sharp-eyed, though, and they had caught on without saying anything. Corey and Nancy strode back to the loading dock together. This had been an end-of-day ritual for her and a beginning-of-shift ritual for him. Each day they'd meet and discuss the budget items for the evening, sketching out the front page, talking through major and minor points, like which stories still needed art or what stories might break overnight and necessitate a flash page on the newspaper's website. But... That wasn't his problem anymore. We're going to miss you around here, Nancy said. She drew hard on her cigarette, which drew the tiny vertical lines along her lips into sharp relief. The first two fingers of her right hand, the ones that held the cigarette, were slightly yellowed, stained with nicotine. When she'd come to work for the paper, her nails had been perfectly lacquered. Now... Most of the time, the polish was chipped and peeling, and she picked at her fingers absently while the newsroom died its slow, silent death around her. "'I've been missing it for a while now already,' Corey said. His voice echoed around the open loading dock. When he first started, the dock was where the printers had taken the papers off the press in freshly wrapped bundles that were warm to the touch.' When Corey first started up in the newsroom, on the main floor of the building, he could always tell when the press started running, because the floor would vibrate softly, bringing even more life into the building. But in some buyout or other down the line, the old web press had been broken down and sold for parts. Now all that was left was the hollowed-out, oil-stained cavern where it had once been. All that's left of the dinosaurs are the bones, petrified relics of a bygone era. What are you going to do with all that money? Nancy asked. She sounded wistful. I don't know yet, he said. Maybe visit the girls down in Pensacola. But maybe not. His wife didn't want to see him, 
and the girls, teenagers now, were strangers. Too many late nights, too many deadlines, too many mistrecitals and dances. His first editor, a man who'd been well into his 60s by the time Corey came on at the paper, had warned him away from marriage and family if he wanted to be a newspaper man. This business is hell on women, kid. They'll always want you to choose between them and work. And when you choose the job, they'll never let you forget it. Maybe the old man had been right. Corey had time now to find out if he wanted to. He finished his cigarette, butted it out on the sole of his shoe, and threw it in the sand-packed bucket they used for a trash can. The car was pointed nose out down a steep driveway, a new Honda Accord. Hadn't been off the lot for six months before the debtor fell behind on payments. Now it had popped up on the hot list that populated the laptop anchored to the dash of Corey's truck. He got out, popped the vehicle identification number, a little metal plate visible on the driver's side of the dash, and made sure he had the right unit. He did a quick inspection in the dark. No body damage, and the rotors underneath the tires were clean of rust. He peered into the cabin, checking the emergency brake. It was off, so he hopped back into the cab of his truck, feeling the rumble of the engine under his ass, and lowered the boom. He had the newest truck in the fleet, with a boom that would drop down past zero degrees. They called it negative tilt and he could reach beneath units that were parked down steep driveways like this. Corey used the hydraulic controls to slide the boom under the Honda and lock onto the front wheels. The boom engaged, and he lifted the Honda to an incline so that only its rear wheels were touching the driveway. He shifted the truck into drive and pulled out. No lights in the house behind him came on. No dogs barked. He'd gotten away clean again. By the time the third day of unemployment rolled around, Corey knew he wasn't going to be able to write anything. It was the noise, or the lack of it. In the newsroom, with a deadline beating down on him and the hum of other journalists doing their own work, he could pound out a thousand words in an hour. No typos, no rewrites. The first draft of history, even if that history was just a recap of a county commission meeting that ended late. In his sunny little home office, where he'd never done much more than write out checks for the monthly bills, writing anything as vast as a novel seemed impossible. He put the TV on in the living room, just for some noise, but found it impossible to concentrate. TV noise sounded like nothing more than TV noise, and he found himself wandering into the living room, plopping down on the couch to check out the second half of the view and staying there for the judges, Judy and Mathis. By the time Ellen DeGeneres' show ended each afternoon, he'd be disgusted with himself for another wasted day. He got a police scanner and placed it on his desk, 
hoping that its familiar noise would help him calm down and find that zen-like place in his mind where the world went away and the words came. It helped for a couple of days, and then it was just background noise. He started lurking on social media, checking out the paper's web presence. He wanted to be reassured that his work there had meant something, that all the hours he'd sacrificed, the marriage and family he'd thrown over the side, was worth it, that he was, unlike everyone else who had left, irreplaceable. To his dismay, the paper continued to publish without him. Nancy would occasionally text, gossiping about who else had gotten the axe. She was safe, of course. She hadn't been with the paper long enough to command a decent salary, and she was young enough that the long hours and low pay seemed sort of romantic to her. But Corey could sell some cracks were appearing at the edges. No bonuses this quarter, she messaged one night out of the blue. We're still in austerity, whatever that means, for fuck's sake. I was counting on that money. As for Corey, he blew through the buyout money. It wasn't real to him. He applied to other newspapers, but the only one that wanted to hire him was out in the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming. What the hell did he know about Wyoming? He flew out for the interview anyway, on their dime, not his, and found a little shop that was charming and quaint. The town, about 5,000 people total, was mostly one or two story buildings, and the mountains surrounding the place painted a blue haze on the horizon. The high plains were scoured by constant wind, and in places, bare rock was scraped raw. The deep folds and creases in the earth looked like something Georgia O'Keeffe might have painted in her earlier and unfinished work. The first thing he did with the publisher was to settle down on the man's back deck with three months' worth of newspapers and a supply of red Sharpie pens. Corey scanned the papers. He caught typos in headlines and cut lines. He questioned why certain stories got play and why others didn't. Instead of being embarrassed, the publisher looked eager. This is just what we need here, the publisher said. You understand local. You understand what I want. He brought out a bottle of Maker's Mark and they toasted one another. Several times after that, they found reasons to lift a glass until the bottle was empty and they were full. The publisher put him on a plane back to Alabama the next day with a promise that he'd make an offer soon. But when the offer came, Corey's heart fell. They wanted him to work for half of what he'd been making in Birmingham. I can't do it, he finally told the publisher. His voice was calm, but tears were flowing freely down his face. I can't figure out how to make the money work. Money. That's what it all came down to. Eleven months after he took the buyout, Corey was out of money, so stone broke that his debit and credit cards were declined at the Circle K convenience store 
where he stopped to buy a soft drink. Even now, more than a year later, he could feel the hot embarrassment on his face as the cashier just looked at him. Looked at him as if he were the dumbest person on earth. But he wasn't dumb. Well, not usually, anyway. Of course, he'd known the money was running out, just as a secret hope inside his heart that he would once more be welcomed into the ever-shrinking newsrooms still operating around the country, was running out, like steam hissing from a damaged car radiator. The money was gone. He began perusing the job websites harder, expanding his search parameters until he found something that caught his eye. Driver wanted immediately, the headline said, and listed a phone number. That was all. He called the number, and a woman's voice answered. I'm calling about the job you listed on Indeed, he said, and then she cut him off. Can you pass a drug test, the woman said. Could he pass a drug test? Corey grinned at the phone. He'd never done any kind of illegal drug. Not ever. The only one of his friends from high school and college who could say that. He'd often wondered at the lure of a forbidden high, but it had simply never appealed to him. So he never did it. Peer pressure, it seemed, wasn't so inevitable after all. Maybe he should have had better, or perhaps worse, friends. Yes, Corey said, and he could feel cool relief flush down his neck. I can pass it. Good, the woman said. The last three guys who wanted this job couldn't. She gave him an address in Pinson, a small town north of Birmingham. He read it back to her. I so you're not illiterate, she said. Come in and fill out the application. Wait, how much does it pay? There was a pause on the woman's end. 125 a car. The line went dead. She'd hung up or gotten cut off. Corey still didn't understand what kind of work it was, but the promise of 125 a car rang in his ears. That was the interview. He passed the drug screen and the background check. The woman who'd spoken to him on the phone, Bailey, ran the office for American Repossessors United. She pushed Corey's application through sent him for a week of training at the company headquarters just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And within two weeks, he was behind the wheel of an $80,000 tow truck. He was, in fact, paid $125 for every unit he repossessed. And nothing at all if he didn't find anything. It was feast or famine from the get-go. But Corey found he liked the work. He seemed to have a natural aptitude for it. Within the first three months on the job, he became the top agent in the Birmingham office, pulling in 20 to 30 units a week. Those numbers got him noticed at the corporate level, too. He ran new accounts on his list every night, inputting updates on the laptop computer anchored to the dash of the truck, while his right foot pressed the gas pedal. He used social media platforms to stalk and find debtors, 
and he cross-referenced license plate numbers that repeatedly showed up at addresses he was monitoring. He found that he was using the relentless approach he'd taken with journalism, spending hours upon hours behind the wheel. He was in the Dodge or in the Toyota, sometimes for 20 hours a day. It was an icebreaker with a certain type of woman, a conversational gambit that almost always worked with one or other of the nurses who frequented the bar at Pale Eddie's Poorhouse on 2nd Avenue. Corey could always tell they were nurses, even if they weren't wearing scrubs. There was some medicinal smell, nothing unpleasant about them, an odor that seemed antiseptic. Perfume couldn't cover it up. Sitting next to one of the nurses from St. Vincent's Hospital at the Long Bar, Corey would buy her a drink. At some point, she'd look at him in his dark blue jeans and his neat polo shirt and ask, What do you do for a living? Corey would grin and drain his drink. I steal cars, he'd say, and let her figure out that he was a repo man. It almost always got a little bit of a laugh. If the woman was open to it, Corey would tell stories about some of the things he'd seen during his time in the truck. How the whores, sorry, the sex workers, out in Brighton were aggressive as magpies, sometimes slapping the hood of his truck as he trundled slowly past their street corners in the dead of the night, trying to get his attention. He would tell the story of the Chevy Colorado pickup that continually escaped over a period of two weeks. Corey's bad luck to always spot the unit as the debtor was actually in the truck. He got that unit when the driver parked and stepped into a convenience store, probably just for a minute. And by the time he came back out, Corey and the Colorado were long gone. That sounds dangerous. Is it like that TV show? The nurse might ask. No, Corey would laugh, knowing the reality TV show she was talking about, where a couple of good old boys acted like idiots, playing fast and loose and lawless for an audience on cable TV. They play that sort of thing up for the cameras. With most women, that was the right answer. But sometimes the play wasn't going his way. The nurse too young or too hip or too ironic. She'd ask the question and Corey would let it hang there for a moment in the silence between them. And then he'd grin, that little sideways grin that had disappeared as he got older and more jaded and less cocky. Yes, he would answer those women. It's just like that. The obscene part to Corey was that repo work paid better than newspaper work ever had or ever would. The most he'd ever made as a journalist was $40,000 in a year. In six months as a repo agent, he'd passed that benchmark. But as much as he liked the money and genuinely enjoyed the investigative aspect of the job, he still hated parts of it. He hated backing down a long driveway, dropping the heavy boom with the negative tilt underneath the bumper of a wanted unit with rear-wheel drive and having to lock heavy canvas straps down over the tires to secure it in place. Or worse yet, he hated having to use the dollies, 
heavy, cumbersome steel bars with hard rubber tires on either end on the rear of the truck to lock onto rear wheels of certain vehicles with all-wheel drive. He didn't like the nights with the full moon when people seemed easier to rouse, when the rumble of the big Hemi engine would wake everyone in the neighborhood and people would come out to watch in silence as he repossessed the unit he was after. And he didn't like the black dirt and grease that constantly attacked his fingernails and the lines in his palms. Every time he finished a shift, he would shower, using soap with a hard pumice stone in it to get the crud off of his hands. He rarely felt clean anymore, even after the shower. He was an anomaly in this new world, college-educated and soft, a man with no feel for the lockout kit, a hard plastic wedge used to pry open a unit's window, and a long metal rod with a half-hook at the end that the other, other agents wielded with the deft diplomacy of long use. When they saw one another, which was infrequently, the other agents teased him about his education and his political views. Stop being a damn liberal, Nick would say and laugh. Nick, who was not yet 30 and sported a sleeve of tattoos from his left wrist to his shoulder, who chain-smoked Marlboros and listened to artists Corey had never heard of, white mumble rappers like Post Malone or Jelly Roll, and who would take a shit on a debtor's lawn if you couldn't find the wanted unit at their address. Hell, he can't help it, Stevie might chime in, pronouncing can't as can't. Stevie, who wore basketball shorts and muscle shirts year-round, no matter how cold it got, who had lost the hearing in his left ear when he was nine, when his brother struck him upside the head with a hard pine two-by-four, who would laugh and point at the thick rope of scar tissue that wrapped from around his ear all the way up to the top of his closely shorn head. They done educated him up there at that college, and then the newspaper ruined him. He'd be all right. If we can keep him in a truck for the next five years, he'll get it all out of his system. Javier, who was also teased by the other agents, rarely said anything either way. He'd just look on in silence, sometimes laughing, sometimes watching with dark and brooding eyes that never let on just what he was thinking. Javier had come to Alabama as a small child and still spoke with the melodic lilt of his native Dominican Republic, even though he'd never been out of the United States. He learned the music of his country's language at home with his mother and three sisters, and it was his dream to visit Paris one day. You should go, Corey told him one day. There's nothing like it anywhere. Corey had taken his first wife to Paris on their honeymoon a fact that impressed the other agents with its extravagance and romance, even if the marriage itself hadn't lasted. But Javier only shook his head sadly. I think I'll stay here, he said, casting a sidelong glance at Nick. I think if I go overseas, they maybe don't let me come back. Nick laughed. I knew you was illegal, he said, his voice full of mirth. Hey, Stevie! I'm not, Javier said, and the way he said it made the laughter in Nick's words die. Nobody said anything for a minute, so Javier said, 
I got a green card, and then I got a citizenship test, and then I got a social security card. I'm as American as you are. Nick, who was embarrassed that Javier hadn't let his joke go, shook his head and said bullshit in a low voice. Hey, fuck you, Javier said. I earned it. All you had to do was be born here. Nick threw down a half-smoked cigarette and stepped over to Javier. It might have gotten serious, but Corey and Stevie stepped between them, hustling them out of each other's face and away toward their respective trucks. It seemed natural that Corey would go with Javier, the token liberal and the token minority banding together against the rednecks. And so Corey did, guiding the bigger man to the cab of his truck, telling him not to worry about it, to put it out of his mind. He couldn't bring himself to judge Nick and Stevie too harshly. Despite their teasing, he liked them all, and was pretty sure they liked and accepted him too, or else they would have ignored him completely. All of the agents were competent at their jobs, tough, and were as relentless as he was if only in different ways. They'd each helped him learn the ropes of the job early on, and he still felt indebted to them. Nancy still texted from time to time. One time she even called in in order to pick his brain on where to go with a story that a young reporter was pursuing. He was good enough to consult for free, but not good enough to pay for his years of experience. What are you doing these days? She asked him when they were done talking about the story. Oh, this and that, he said. He didn't know why he didn't talk to her about the new job, the new career. Was he ashamed of it? No. Well, okay, maybe a little. But he also liked it, the silent shark thrashing through the dark waters of the Birmingham night, feasting or starving, depending on how the night went, but always swimming forward. I bet you're still living high off that buyout, she said. She couldn't keep the jealousy out of her voice. Jesus, it must have been like hitting the lottery. If it had, the lottery he'd won had been poisonous, killing off his career, his previous life, as surely as a cyanide capsule would kill the captured spy in a war movie. He didn't have a lot to say to her since he didn't feel like he could talk about the new job. They hung up and Corey felt his chest loosen, like a clenched fist finally opening. It was Nick who told him the story about the woman in Homewood, a Tony subdivision where it might have been a crime to leave a unit in the driveway after dark. The houses out there were huge, three- and four-story affairs, with brick and ivy and manicured sidewalks. The houses all came with postage-stamp-sized yards, with the houses all seeming about arm's length away from one another. McMansions in everything but name. The streets were fresh black asphalt, so new and gleaming that it might have been put down earlier in the same evening. But no matter how nice the neighborhood, an agent always ran the address, because he might find something. Like that night when Nick was looking for a black Maserati, not even one of the nicer ones, just the base model. When he pulled up to the debtor's address, 
There it was, parked in the garage with an overhead light beaming down on its waxed and shiny hood. Technically, repo agents were not supposed to enter an area where a vehicle was secured, like a closed and locked fence or a closed garage. The open garage, however, was a gray area, and like most agents, Nick most often thrived in that gray area. He checked the license plate against the wanted unit on his computer. It matched, so he backed into the driveway and lowered the boom, scooping the unit. He got out of his truck and checked the VIN. Bingo. He stepped back to the truck to get the canvas tie-downs out of the side boxes when a voice stopped him. What do you think you're doing? Nick spun around when he heard her speak, ready for anything but what he saw. The speaker was a tall, willowy woman, blonde hair and a great tan that she'd gotten from afternoons at the country club and sleek muscles toned from hours on a tennis court or in an air-conditioned gym. Her voice was low, without alarm or effect. He used the portable printer in the floorboard of the truck's passenger side to print out the repo order and gave it to her. She read it, nodded, and then glanced at the Maserati as if it didn't matter. Is it okay if I get my stuff out? Sure, Nick said. Just give me the key first. She gave him a look, some sly idea stealing along behind her eyes like a fox on the run. You could put it down, she said. She looked meaningfully at him, her cheeks blushing soft red in the light reflected from the garage. She looked at him with sweet honey eyes and smiled. What am I going to do, run off with it? Nick shook his head. It was a hard and fast rule. Once a unit was on the hook, never take it off. Not until it was unloaded at the car lot for transport to the bank. She looked at him. Nick, who was five feet four inches tall on a good day, was nearly six inches shorter than he was, his stubby wide body strong and thick in his work clothes. He probably smelled the high heaven. Cut me some slack, she said. Put the car down. I'm good for it, I swear. I can't do that, he said. But she continued to haggle, to plead, to beg. That's when she took one of his meaty hands in both of hers and whispered in his ear, telling them that if telling him that if he put the unit down, that she'd give him a blowjob. That did the trick. Nick lowered the boom on the truck, putting the rear wheels of the Maserati back on the concrete floor of the garage. Then the woman led him into a back corner of the garage and knelt in front of him. She undid his fly and pulled his cock out, taking him in her mouth. It didn't take him long to finish. He zipped up and got back into his truck. Then he raised the lift and picked the unit up again and drove off with the car in tow leaving the trophy wife screaming that he was a son of a bitch and running down the street after him until she couldn't keep up anymore. This had happened, supposedly, a few months before Corey started, but he'd heard Nick tell the story four or five times over the previous years. He always told it the same way, flat, without much emotion, the details always the same. I told her I'd put it down, Nick said. I never told her I wouldn't pick it up again. 
Corey had no opinion on whether this had really happened, but if he had had to bet on it, he would have said that it did. There was a confidence, a bantam cockiness in Nick that the other agents lacked. It was certainly conceivable that a woman would find a combination of attraction for Nick and desperation to keep a car like that and then offer herself to him sexually. And Stevie swore up and down that Nick had told him the same story on the night he came in with the black Maserati. In the intervening time, his story hadn't changed. To Corey, who had spent years listening to politicians and criminals lie while he interviewed them, that gave Nick's story the ring of truth. And even if it wasn't, it was better than most of the other stories they told one another. The ones about angry debtors crashing out of their doors at 3 a.m., clad in dingy underwear and brandishing firearms. None of the Birmingham agents had ever been shot, not yet, but they'd all had close calls. Stevie had showed up one morning with two neat bullet holes drilled through the glass in the rear windshield of his truck and a pair of slugs buried in his dashboard. Probably did it himself, Javier said, checking Stevie's truck. You know that cracker ain't riding ahead. Corey and Nick watched from a distance. He didn't want to get close to the spent rounds. Just looking at the bullet holes made him feel a little weak below his belt line. Javier reached in his back pocket and brought out a heavy folding knife, which he flicked open with one hand. Peering at the dash, he worked the sharp blade carefully around in the first hole and then the other until he plucked out two deformed lead mushrooms. He walked over to Corey and Nick and held the shrapnel in his palm for them to see. Twenty-twos, Nick said. That's not so bad. Maybe twenty-fives, Javier said. Probably just sting a little, you know, from a distance. They were straight-faced, not looking at Corey. He couldn't tell if they were kidding or not. Probably a little bit of both. Serious and funny. The job required a lot of balls to go onto someone else's property in the middle of the night, skulk out and pop a VIN on the dashboard with a flashlight, maybe hook up the loud and heavy hydraulic lift, and then scoot away like a thief in the night. They each walked a line somewhere between confident and cocky but the bullet holes were a reminder of how things could go wrong and how close Stevie had come to a bad end somewhere in outer bumfuck. Corey could picture it in his head, Stevie, half his head blown away, gut sagging in his sleeveless muscle shirt, basketball shorts filling with shit and piss after his bowels let go, sitting in the leather seat behind the steering wheel as the truck leaned cantilevered in a ditch somewhere. He shook his head to clear the image and walked away. He couldn't think about things like that and continue to do the job. When her name came up on the hot list, Corey wasn't too surprised. The GPS took him to her address, a large apartment complex off of Highway 150 in Hoover, the largest suburb of Birmingham. The suburbs meant less security than in the city proper, and this particular complex had no gate and no guard. 
easy pickings unless she'd moved and the skip tracers were a step behind. The buildings were clearly marked and he drove slowly, bumping over the speed tables at no more than five miles an hour. He found her building and then he found her unit, a two-year-old Mazda 3, a sporty hatchback that looked small enough to fit into his palm. But no, better to use the boom. He took the Mazda from behind, raising it up and pulling it deftly from its parking space before leaving it in the middle of the parking lot. He released the hooks and slid away from the unit, circling back around until he could lock onto it from the front so that he wouldn't have to throw straps over the rear wheels. He drove away with her car trailing behind him like a remora suctioned tight to the back of an apex predator. His phone was in his lap, his text messages open to Nancy's last missive, the one where she talked about the budget cuts that had come down the pike. The new owners were slashing newsroom salaries by 25%. She was hanging in there, she said, but just barely. In the meantime, she was looking for a new position, but so far there was no good news on the horizon. Corey thought about texting her. He could tell her everything. He could tell her about the new job, about the top-of-the-line truck with a negative tilt and the hydraulic winch. He could tell her about the money, explain the absurdity of what he did now and how the newspaper business had unexpectedly prepared him for this new opportunity. But it was almost four in the morning, and she would know soon enough that there was no good news anywhere. Not anymore. That was Negative Tilt. If you enjoyed this story, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you found it. Southern Stories is a podcast written and recorded by me, Bobby Matthews. I'm a writer, podcaster, actor, and artist based in Birmingham, Alabama. Follow me on Twitter, at BamaWriter, or find me on Facebook, Bob the Writer. Emails are welcome at matthews.freelance at gmail.com. And please don't forget that's Matthews with one T. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next time with another story.